Nixon Guilt Law presents Legally Femtech, hosted by Bethany Corbin. Bethany is a healthcare innovation attorney who works with new and innovative health tech companies that are revolutionizing women's healthcare and improving women's lives. In this podcast, Bethany discusses the practical, legal, and ethical aspects of femtech with the industry's most important voices. This podcast is not intended as legal advice and is not an endorsement of any product or company. Now, here's your host. Hi, everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of Legally Femtech. I'm excited to welcome back Dr. Brittany Barreto. Brittany was on the show a couple of weeks ago to talk about initial documents that founders need to have in place and what those documents mean, how they can be used, and what founders should be thinking about as they prepare for their first fundraise. And now Brittany is here with me again to talk about what that first fundraise actually entails. Everything from what founders need to have in place to what documents mean and the entire experience of the first fundraise. For those of you who aren't familiar with Brittany's work, Brittany is the co-founder and executive director of Femtech Focus, and she's also launched a new initiative since we last spoke, which is Fem Health Insights. So welcome, Brittany. I'm excited to have you back on the show today. Uh, we obviously needed more time, so thanks for having me back. <laughs> yes, your your last episode was so full of practical and informative insights for founders. And I'm really excited to continue the conversation today to talk about that first fundraise and what founders need to have in place, what those documents even mean. And so I'd love to start just with a very high level question for you, which is just kind of what were your experiences whenever you had to do your first fundraise? Was it very nerve wracking? Was it a lot of learning on the fly? How did that feel as a founder to know that you were gearing up for your first fundraise uh, the, for the very first time? Um, let's just say that uh, my first ever fundraise, I decided to raise uh, $500,000. And I pitched to an investor and they said, what are you going to you know, actually accomplish with that money? What are you going to spend it on? And I was like, I don't know. And they were like, please don't ask me for money if you haven't made a plan yet. And I was like, oh my God. And I like went back to my co-founder, Ben, and I was like, dude, we need to actually figure out how we're going to spend this half million. He's like, oh yeah. So just to let you give some context as to where I started, I literally, I was so far <laughs> removed from the concept of what I was even doing. So, uh, and so the fact, I think hopefully by the end of the episode, people will think I'm almost an expert on this. All of that to say, like, you, there's hope for all of us to figure this system out. <laughs> yeah, I know it can be very intimidating, I think, too, for first time founders and, and even seasoned founders, right, to have to deal with the math, right, these very formal documents that are going to solidify the investment. And so I think, too, having a founder's perspective here is going to be very helpful as we walk through what you actually need for your first fundraise and try to put it into simple, non-legal terms. Yep. Yep. Totally. And just a side note, y'all, to start this conversation, investors don't know more than you usually. <laughs> these documents. That was one of my biggest fears was just making a fool of myself, you know, talking about valuation or discount, like not knowing enough. And then all of a sudden, when I did become an investor, and I got behind closed doors with angels and VCs, I realized, oh, you actually even knew less than what I knew. So um, do not be concerned. Do not be afraid of the investors. Like we're all here. Hopefully investors are even listening to this. Let's all just learn it together. 
I love that. Yeah, I do think that a lot of founders go into this with a perception that there's a power imbalance, right? Because you as a founder really want that money in order to get your business off the ground. And I've seen founders be very tempted sometimes, you know, to take deals that really aren't in their favor or to partner with people who may not be best suited for their companies. So I always like to remind founders that they have power in this relationship, right? This should be an equal relationship and you all should be partners instead of, you know, kind of a borrower lender situation with a power imbalance. Totally. Let's get into it. I love it. All right, Brittany. So we've got our first invest, you know, our first fundraise, our first investment coming in. Let's say that we have a founder who, you know, knows what they want to use the money for. <laughs> what step <laughs> ahead of me. Yep. Uh-huh. <laughs> what should they be considering in terms of documents they need to prepare or things that they need to prepare when going into that first investment? Yeah. So let's talk about the three main documents that you could have. So you have a convertible note, a safe, and a term sheet. And so convertible notes and safes are contracts. And a term sheet is essentially a summary of that contract. So you'll likely raise your round on either a convertible note or a safe. I have seen some founders do kind of hybrid models, but I don't recommend it. it gets real crazy real fast. And unless you're like, uh, guru at this stuff, I, I I recommend you stick with one of either the convertible note or the safe. And we'll talk in a moment about, you know, what's the difference there. But essentially, either whichever one you choose, you'll still need that term sheet. The term sheet does not have a signature page. So I know a lot of people are, first of all, maybe even realizing, I didn't realize those are two different documents. They are. And the actual contract with the signature is either the note or the safe. The term sheet, again, is like a two-page summary, essentially, of the terms of which are outlined in a you know 10 to 15-page convertible note or safe contract. So first and foremost, those are like your typical vehicles for raising your first round of funding. Let's give a scenario here of like raising a million dollars. So this is the type of round that you would use these types of documents. And if you are actually where I was, (laughs) you know, as a founder, not knowing what you'd spend it on or how much to fundraise, who to talk to, uh, Femtech Focus virtual community, we actually have a fundraising channel where I have a lot of webinars, one of which is called How Much to Raise and From Whom. So go check out that episode and then come back to this one if you're if you don't know if you need a million or not. So but assuming you have a million, that's uh or as your goal, you would do a convertible note or a safe. Perfect. And Brittany, let's back up just one step for the the viewers who may not be as familiar with the terminology. Um, so let's start first with with a term sheet. Why is that important? Because as you mentioned, right, you're going to have a contract that has all of these terms. It's going to be a legally binding document. Why do you also need a term sheet? Kind of what's the purpose of that? <laughs> That's actually a really great question that I am not sure of the legal answer. I'll give you my founder impression is that um, people don't read contracts. <laughs> Is my opinion as to why we even have a term sheet, but I don't know if that's the legal answer. Why do we have term sheets? Yeah, Yeah, it's a great question. So I often see clients come to us, you know, with a sense of what they want to do for the deal in terms of, right, they've talked with their investor. 
they've got an idea of, you know, how much money they're going to raise, what the interest rate is, you know, kind of the maturity schedule. And it's all usually presented to me in in like an email form. (laughs) And so the term sheet really helps to make sure, you know, from the outset that all of the parties agree on what those terms are actually supposed to be for the contract that's being drafted, right? It gets you agreement on the substantive terms early on so that whenever, you know, the convertible note or the safe is being drafted, you don't have a lot of substantive disagreement after that point. And then as Brittany mentioned, it's a very easy reference document for those who want a quick guide, who don't want to read, you know, 10 pages of a contract to try to figure out the main terms. Cool. Well, I guess I was half right. <laughs> yeah, you, you were absolutely ready. You should also read the contract, but term sheets are for streamlining. Got it. <laughs> Love it. Yeah. Okay. So we've got the term sheet and now we're going into a convertible note or a safe. So Brittany, what is a convertible note? What is a safe? Why is there even a difference? Yeah. So um, the original, the OG of fundraising your first round is convertible notes. Safe is a newer thing that came out a few years ago. I think it was Y Combinator, is, was it? Yeah, it might have been. I think it was Y Combinator that made it. Or maybe, it was, well, it's one of the major tech accelerators in California came up with this thing called the safe. And it is very similar to convertible notes. It's just a slightly different. And I'm going to go through the three main reasons why they're different and how. One thing I will say, though, ahead of time is that I personally always raise on a convertible note. I always recommend my founders to raise on a convertible note. And that is because I was a venture capitalist in Texas. And I saw firsthand that 50% of the investors in Texas didn't well, they said they didn't like safes, but what I found out was that they just didn't understand safes, that they had always invested on notes, so they'd rather just continue to do that. And so I literally saw founders not be able to fundraise because they only had a safe to provide. And so I always tell people, you know, if someone's going to do a, a safe, they're fine with a note. But if somebody wants to do a note, they may or may not want to do a safe. And so instead of closing doors on your fundraise, I always just recommend going with a convertible note. So that's just my two cents there. And then the the three main differences between them. Number one, convertible note is technically debt. So you are getting an investment and you owe them something. You either owe them their investment back or you owe them equity in your company, which is 99% of the time the case. I've never known somebody to actually pay money back for a convertible note. I was very worried about that when I had my first convertible note. I was like, wait, they can ask for their money back in two years? What if I don't have it? Like, I got really worried, but I've almost never heard of that happening. Have you heard of that happening where some uh, investor asks for their money back? Yeah, I would say it's a very rare occurrence. Most of the time, right, it's going to convert to equity whenever you get to Mm -hmm. that next raise. Perfect. Cool. So we're in line. Um, (laughs) I love our little touch points in our podcast episodes (laughs) where I'm like checking in with the legal counsel. Is that right? I'm just talking. Uh, (laughs) I love it because it's founder and legal perspective and you can really see how they mesh. Yeah, it's awesome. Cool. So a convertible note is a loan and a safe is not. A safe is just you will give me equity when you fundraise a priced equity round, end of story, period. Convertible note, there's actually different scenarios of which that that loan is paid back. And so again, it can be paid back in either equity or it can be in the company like ownership, or it can be paid back by literal capital like money. That payback period is either signified by a 
uh, maturity date, which I usually see 18 to 24 months after the investment is made. So essentially saying in, you know, we'll go with 24 months, my current convertible note is 24 months. So within 24 months, two years, that's when this note will convert. Or if something else happens sooner, it'll convert then. And the things that can happen sooner are a qualified financing, which essentially just means you sell a certain amount of your company in priced equity. Uh, Typically, that number I see is $500,000. And like, so to kind of break that down, the reason why you're doing debt in the first place, whether that be a safe or a convertible note, is because you have an idea. If you're raising a million dollars, you're not generating a million dollars in revenue, right? You have potentially an MVP, maybe, right? But more so, more often than not, you're you're at the idea, probably a prototype phase. And so to give away equity in your company would be giving out the whole 100% because you're, you're at a, a valuation that is so low, your company might not even be worth a million dollars and yet you're trying to raise a million dollars it doesn't work out ownership wise. And so that's why we're asking investors, please, can you please wait, you know, up to two years for me to give you equity? Because one, that'd be way better for me. Otherwise, you just own this company from day one. Uh, And two, if you wait, I will give you special benefits. And we'll get into that in terms of like the discount and the interest and all that good, good stuff. But just kind of setting the stage as to like, what it, what do you mean qualified financing? It's because if you are able to, at a certain point in your company, whether that be 12 months after the convertible note or 24 months, if you are then generating, you know, $20,000 a month recurring revenue, you have enough value in your company to be, um, priced, you know, to actually sell pieces of your company without giving out 100%. And if you sell 500,000, half a million dollars worth of shares in your company of ownership, then that signals to the convertible note holders, hey, our company is big enough now to actually be valued and to sell pieces of it without giving out 100%. And so now it's time for y'all's investments to convert into ownership as well. So that that's my understanding of it as to why we do it and how and when that the convertible note converts. Um, agreed. Agreed, Bethany, over there. <laughs> Yeah, that's a that's a great explanation, Brittany. And I think it's really important too. you know, convertible notes and safes, right, are, are common tools for fundraising. But I, I really do want to highlight a point that you made, which is you should use whichever one the investor is most familiar with and most comfortable with. Yeah. Otherwise, if you present to them, you know, a fundraising packet that's got investment documents, and they don't understand one of those documents you know, sometimes they'll ask you for a different document. Other times they might choose to walk away, right? Because they think that you're doing something that's not standard. So whenever you're talking about investment documents, it's really important that you're using those standard documents that Brittany and I are talking about today, because that's what investors are going to know and understand. And they're going to be a lot less receptive to documents that fall outside of that realm that they're just not as familiar with. Yep. And uh, I said this on the last episode, and I'll say it again. Please don't pay a lawyer to write one from scratch. If they do not have one on stock, you have the wrong lawyer. 
And second, I mean, the other alternative is if you don't have a lawyer that's just willing to give you kind of a template for a very small price, I would recommend at reaching out to another founder who's fundraised on a maybe a convertible note, if that's what you're using, saying, hey, would you mind, you know, deleting the, you know, confidential information like investors name, et cetera. And, um, you know, let me let me have a template for you and then just pay your lawyer to review it and approve of it, because these really are cookie cutter documents. Investors don't want surprises in there. They don't feel like reading all 20 pages for every deal they make. And so there there is a sense of this is going, you know, this this convertible note should look like the last 50 that I signed, you know, with just slight slight uh, alterations with the terms. Yeah, in this type of an environment, when you're raising capital, you do want to make sure that you've got an attorney who is familiar with the documents that we're talking about today. Just because right, there's ways in which, you know, fundraising can go wrong, all of that type of stuff. So if you are working with an attorney who, as Brittany mentioned, right, hasn't seen this before, hasn't done this before, necessarily, right, they don't have a document that they can work from, you know, at least, you know, (laughs) to start as kind of a base, Mm -hmm. you may want to consider working with attorneys that are very much ingrained within the startup world, because they're also going to know what's market, right? So if your investor Mm -hmm. is asking for terms that are just egregious, right, somebody who's not as familiar with startup companies may not be able to spot that for you. Whereas somebody who does these on a regular basis can say, "Mm, that's a little bit high, you know, why are you giving this percent? You know, what, what's your thing? thinking there? What is the reason for this interest rate? And they're able to just spot things like that on a, on a much quicker basis. They've yeah. usually got documents that they can work from, and they'll tailor specifically to your situation, right? Your investment, your terms that have been agreed upon. And they'll you know work to make sure that you've got a document that's favorable for you. Sometimes if you work from documents, you know, that have, you know, that you get from other founders, they can be good bases, but sometimes they're also already negotiated documents. And so they may not necessarily always have terms that are in your favor, or they might have negotiated terms. So that's always one thing to look at, you know, just depending on where you get documents, not just, you know, for investment documents, but anytime, a con- you know, any type of contract document that you're getting from other founders. Think about whether or not that's you know the first version of the contract or is that the yeah. negotiated final version and make totally. sure that you just kind of understand that when you're looking at other contracts. Yep, 100%, 100%. So the three, you know, in summary, the three main differences between convertible note and a safe is one, there's no interest on a safe because it's not a loan while there's interest on the convertible note, which is a loan. Two, it converts into equity for safes is whenever you raise your price equity round for convertible notes, it's either two years or it's when you uh, raise at least 500000 or whatever your documents say is your qualified financing amount. And then the third is... It's a, you know, they say that on a safe, you can do a rolling basis of fundraising, meaning like someone wants to invest this week, another person wants to invest in two weeks, and then another person next month you can send them a safe and get their money each time. Boom, boom, boom. Instead of like, all right, today's the day for everyone to wire your money in. And the reason why they say that for convertible notes that you cannot do that is simply because the interest rate starts on the day that investment is made, when that contract signed, when the money is wired. 
I I venture to say, like, get that money and just make an Excel sheet. I feel like we're at a stage where we can consider dates and do some really basic functions that like keep track of that. That's what I do. That's what I did. I didn't know that there was a closing date. Like that concept didn't make sense. I was I was like, someone wants to give me money. Get give them the wire. <laughs> like tell them the routing number, right? Um, and then I just marked down the date. So I would guess this. I would say that's between you and and your legal counsel and your, you know, um, attorney and accounter, accounting firm, like what would be best. But I mean, I'm of the basis. If someone wants to give you money, send them the contract and with the account and routing number. Amazing. So Brittany, now that we've talked about kind of what convertible notes are, what safes are, you know, what investors are looking for in these documents, can you walk us through a bit more um, for a convertible note, kind of what the terms are that founders should be thinking about up front and that might appear in these types of convertible notes? Definitely. So the four kind, four terms in your convertible note is the maturity date and qualified financing. I guess it's five, right? One, two, three, four, five. So maturity date, quality, qualified financing. Three is discount. Four is interest. And five is valuation cap. I won't talk anymore about maturity date and qualified financing because we've kind of reviewed that. That's when the, the loan converts into equity. But the three, but they can be uh, negotiated. So I keep saying 24 months, but it could be, you know, 18 or whatever. So that technically is a term that is a variable. Same with the qualified financing. I said half a million. It's what I normally see, but maybe some, you know, your contract says $100,000 or whatever. So those are variables that can be negotiated. So I want to identify that. But the three I'd love to deep dive into is discount interest and valuation cap. Um, Which one do you want me to start with? Whichever one you want, Brittany. (laughs) Okay. So uh, discount is essentially, so again, and why, why do we even have these three things? These three, these three terms are all because we're saying, hi, investor, thank you so much for putting, you know, a hundred thousand dollars into my million dollar round. My company is only worth $100,000. So you're going to technically own 100%. So please, can you just wait two years until I get more traction, increase the value of my company, and then I'll give you equity. But I'll give you some benefits because you believed in me two years, you know, prior to me having value. And so that's what these terms are all about is like essentially like a thank you. I think of this is all like, again, in my founder terminology, like a thank you to the investor for waiting. So number one is the discount. So essentially saying, you know, at, when we convert your loan into equity, I will give you a discount on our par value. Par value is the price per share. So let's say you have uh, a company made of a million shares, which by the way, listen to the previous episode, you should form at least 10 million, but we're trying to do easy math here today. We are trying to do easy math to get some hard concepts across. So let's say your company has 1 million shares, 100, 1 million pieces of the pie. And you have each piece is worth $1. Let's just go easy, right? So you're a million dollar company. And so when you fundraise in two years time, you will be fundraising based on this concept of every $1 somebody gives you, you will give them one share because that's the value of your com- of each you know share. But those investors that invested on the convertible note two years earlier, their investment will convert into equity at a 20% discount. So as if these shares are worth 80 cents and not $1. And so what that means is that 
somebody who invests, you know, uh, somebody who would get 1000 shares for let's say a you know $1000 investment. Instead, those early investors when they convert for that same amount of money getting put in, they are actually getting 1200 shares because the price of the stock is actually 80 cents versus a dollar. So they're getting 20% more shares than people who waited the two years for you to have value. Um, They're having to pay 20% more, a dollar per share versus the 80 cents per share. I will pause there for one second. Was that an accurate description of a discount on your end? Brilliantly done, Brittany. Awesome. And so one thing I see in terms of average discounts is I usually see between 10 to 20%. And so the first convertible note you do is usually closer to 20%. Last convertible note you do, and because you can do multiple rounds, right? Like let's say you have a half a million dollars uh, pre-seed, then you do a $1 million seed, maybe even a, a post-seed of another million dollars for a bridge or something. All of that can be done in convertible notes. And each of those times, you actually change the terms to be not less favorable because they're all still pretty great. But, you know, the person that invests that very, very, very first dollar versus the person that invests a dollar in that post seed round, their risk was so much higher. And so giving them a 20% discount versus that the last dollar that came in on your convertible note, giving them maybe a 10% discount. That's fair in terms of that risk assessment throughout that experience. So that's why a discount is something that you can negotiate. And again, I typically see between between 10 and 20%. Is that the typical range you see for discounts? Yeah, I would say 10 to 20%. Yep. Cool. Oh my God, you're right. I should be a lawyer. <laughs> I told you. <laughs> All right. Next, vari- <laughs> Next variable is interest rate. So uh, kind of similar to your credit card. It literally is like the same thing. The longer you don't pay it off, the more the interest grows. So I usually see typical in interest rates between 5 to 8%, most typically 6 and 7%. I don't see this one move as much as I see the discount or valuation cap, which we'll get to next. So interest rate, I usually just go with a six or seven percent. And essentially it means like once again, right, what we're doing is we're thanking for those found those investors who took such a big risk on us when we were just, you know, a, an idea stage. And what we're um doing is giving them some benefits for taking that risk in us. So one of the benefits was the discount we just offered them. So they're getting 20% more shares by investing early. We also are going to give them interest. So another additional 6% of shares uh, based on their original investment. So let's say instead of getting 1,000 shares, they'll actually get 1,060. So it's essentially like an additional, it's as if you did 6% on a $1,000 investment. And so when it converts, it's as if they invested $1,060 versus when what they actually did was $1,000. So it's interest rate, essentially. Um, Bethany, how do you think on that one? Yeah, absolutely, Brittany. As you mentioned, you know, kind of the t- the interest rate that we see a lot is usually between, you know, 5 to 7%. So that's, you know, kind of a standard range. People don't try to get as creative with that term in my experience. Mm-hmm. Yeah, me, me too. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> cool. All right. Valuation cap. This is actually my favorite one to talk about. <laughs> so I call this the Oprah clause. 
All right. Now walk with me here. Like this is totally, I should just do founder legal talk, right? Like this is actually called the (laughs) Oprah clause. So the Oprah clause. I can imagine that as a sitcom, you know. (laughs) Oh my gosh. I, I honestly, I think more often than not, my life should absolutely be a sitcom. So we'll, but we'll, we'll make, maybe that reality TV show will come about one day. But, um, so valuation cap, um, (laughs) Oprah clause. So essentially, again, here's the scenario, y'all. You uh, have an idea, you go to an investor, they believe in it, even though it's wild and you have no pro, you have no traction. You, you know, maybe even didn't form your company yet. Who knows? Right. But they believed in you. And two years later, you're going to give them the the equity in your company because you'll actually have traction and value. And so why I call this the Oprah clause is that what if you go on Oprah in those two years and your little idea company and that you, you know, you raised a million dollars. So now you have version one of the product and all of a sudden Oprah hears about it. She falls deeply in love with it. She invites you under her show. You get interviewed, you meet Meghan Markle, the whole nine thing, you know, nine yards and you blow up into a billion dollar company, right? The dream come true for every founder. Well, what about that investor that put in, you know, a dollar in the beginning? Their $1 in your billion dollar company two years later is literally pennies, pennies. Like they will own literally nothing in your company. And yet they were the one who believed you pre-Oprah. They deserve some significant ownership in that company. And so for me, valuation cap is essentially this promise to investors that say, hey, in the next two years, we are likely going to be valued at this amount. But just in case we go on Oprah, right? And like, this could be, you could go on Michelle Obama's podcast. You could go, I don't know, right? Like whatever, whatever uh, crazy inflection point happens that increases your value uh, um, exponentially, you give a promise to the early stage investors that even if that happens, which y'all would both be very happy about, their, their investment will convert as if the company is worth blank. And so blank is the valuation cap. So right now, uh, Crunchbase actually just published last month, this year's average uh, seed stage valuation is $10 million. So this is the average across all the United States. And I do want to talk about geography for one second, because valuation caps in Raleigh, North Carolina are different than San Francisco, California. So we'll talk about that in a second. But essentially, your valuation cap is a pre-negotiated value of your what you estimate your company to be worth in two years time. And, you know, essentially making a promise that, again, if you're if you become a, you know, hundred million dollars worth, your early stage thousand dollar investor actually still has some significant and will convert as if your company is worth 10 million, the cap amount. The quick word about geography, and then I'd love Bethany to kind of confirm or contradict anything I'm saying here, is that geography is that valuation caps in places like New York City, Boston, San Francisco, much, much higher. So those are more like $20 million valuation caps, which somebody who is in potentially Houston, Texas, or Raleigh, North Carolina, or, you know, uh, uh, Kansas, they're like, whoa, you got an investment on a $20 million valuation cap? My first fundraise for my seed round in Houston was $3 million valuation cap. I'm actually currently 
fundraising with a 10 million cap. And I think that's appropriate for where I am geography wise, industry wise, traction wise, blah, 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 blah. All these reasons why I actually would love to talk about like, how do you, how do you figure that out? We talk about that in a second, but yeah, it can, it can definitely range. This is probably one of the biggest ranges I would say, because it depends on so much, whether you are a consumer product good versus a therapeutic drug, whether you're in San Francisco or you're in, um, you know, Minnesota, like the, those are all variables that go into what your valuation cap will be. So I'll pause there for a second. Beautifully explained, Brittany. <laughs> I think, I think the, analogy to Oprah just really hits this home, right? And kind of how it works, practically speaking. (laughs) And it's one that I haven't heard before. So I was very, very amused with it. And I really enjoyed it. I do think think that your point about geography is well taken, right? Because the valuation is going to be very much dependent on where your company is, right? Where it's physically located. And so that's something that we absolutely have to take into account with the valuation. And I'm really glad that you raised that. Yep. Yep. So, you know, a a quick example would be if you are raising today on a 10 million valuation cap, a $100,000 investment today would convert at that cap to, for that person to own 1%. Now, let's say you, you know, Oprah Claus activated, you go on Oprah and actually in two years time, your company isn't worth 10 million. It's actually worth 20 million. Maybe it was an Oprah. Maybe it was uh, like the late, late night show or something. Uh, and and the, whoever invests in two years time when you're valued at 20 million, their $100,000 investment results in a 0.5% ownership. Versus the people who put in 100K two years ago, they get 1% ownership. Even though it's the same quantity of money, that early investor gets more, uh, you know, double the ownership versus waiting two years of putting in their money in. So this is why we don't sell equity in the beginning. And this is the benefits of being an early stage investor is, you know, you can get huge discounts, interest and, you know, prices on companies that, you know, uh, you see the potential in and maybe get first dibs and get a huge bonus at the end of that. The one other thing I want to say about valuation is that it's (laughs) for for better or worse, it's pretty much made up is what I've experienced. So there is this thing called um, a 409A. It's 409A, right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, cool. Just confirming because <laughs> it's numbers and letters and I'm like, I may not have remembered that correctly. Uh, but 409A is an actual uh, government legal document that you can uh, pay for. And it's thousands of dollars, by the way. You, and the government will actually look at all your assets, look at your bank, look at your IP, look at your team, look at all the things that could contribute to the value of your company. And they actually give you a certified value. I remember, again, my first company when I got my first 409A because I was raising my Series A. And that's usually when you get this is when you do go to raise your priced equity round. So if you're raising a convertible note, don't even worry about this. It's only when you go to do your priced equity and uh, the government actually wrote like that we were worth about three million, and I was so I thought that was just the coolest thing because I knew that valuations were essentially hand waving, but to actually see the government say it, it was pretty pretty cool, honestly. But yeah, so that's like the only that's official really way. Yeah, uh, that's like the only official way I know that to get a valuation. Otherwise, it's just essentially like 
licking your finger and putting it up in the wind. Um, there's things that you can add up. Like I said, how many files have you, how many patents have you filed? Do you have trademarks? How many followers do you have? How many email subscribers do you have? What kind of traction do you have in terms of your product development and algorithms in, you know, a number of contacts, your sales, uh, you know, pipeline, um, the, the, the team capacity. And that includes your advisors. Like if you have advisors that if you're a dating app and you have the CEO of match.com and, and your advisors, like that has value. I guess uh, it's a femtech one. I should use a different. If you're a sex tech company, you have Cindy Gallup as an advisor. How's that? That that increases the value of your company because she's she's famous for being you know sexual wellness advocate. So those all things go into your value. Now, if you are a founder raising on a convertible note, this happened to me where I had an angel investor at an angel network raise their hand and they said, "Oh, what's your valuation?" And I said. Great question, because investors like to feel like they're smart. So I said, great question. Uh, we are actually raising on a convertible note. So we have, you know, in that time, it was a $3 million valuation cap. And that investor said, okay, but what's your valuation? And I got so nervous. I got so nervous and I got embarrassed and my he- face was hot and my heart was racing in front of, you know, 100 Houston Angel Network members. So nervous that I didn't understand valuation caps, because my understanding was that the whole point was that we can't value my company right now because it's worth nothing. Right. And like this, this set, this idea, this negotiation is on what I'm valued on in two years time. And so he kept pushing me. Well, what's your valuation? What's your valuation? I later found out that that guy just didn't understand convertible notes. So I recommend founders today, if someone's harping on you about your valuation and you say, oh, well, we're actually raising on a convertible note and our valuation cap is X. And they say, okay, okay, but what's your value? What's your valuation? I would steer clear or at least make a hard mental note that that person may not understand how these documents work. And people who don't understand how these documents work are usually not the ones that are comfortable losing all their money. So um, you want people comfortable losing all their money on your cap table because nine out of 10 times they do. And I know that I've lost investors money. My first startup did not succeed. I had um, $1.3 million worth of people's money that... I'm such a female founder move. When I closed my company, I wrote them all little notes saying that I was sorry it didn't work out. And I hope we can work again together. And like a few of them reached out and they were like, I've invested in a hundred startups and no one's ever written me an apology letter. <laughs> like that's such a female founder move. But um, alas, I digress. Um, that That's just a little tidbit about valuations, how you quantify them, you know, and an investor perspective, again, sometimes I thought investors were financial gurus. And a lot of times they're, especially angels, sometimes they're just people with extra cash. They don't understand valuations. Yeah, that's absolutely right. If somebody's asking you a question that you that doesn't make sense for the documents that you've presented or for your company, don't be afraid to push back and say, why are you asking that question? You know, what, what yeah. makes you think that we have this? You know, I'm trying to understand what you're getting at because maybe we don't call it that, right? Maybe we call it something else. And it just yeah. kind of helps them to realize, okay, maybe that's not the right term. You know, maybe they're asking the wrong question and maybe you're able to kind of spot the information that they're trying to get if it's mm-hmm. something that you have without embarrassing them. 
So absolutely, <laughs> absolutely right, Brittany, that what can happen. And especially right with, with the startup stages, right? You've got angel investors, people who, you know, might not be part of venture capital firms. And so this might be something they're doing on the side with their money, right? And, and it may be their first one. So it's helpful, you know, for you to come in prepared with this document set to have an understanding of what these terms mean, kind of what's market or standard, and to help them through the process as well. Yeah, I wish I actually said this in the beginning, but you can set your own terms, y'all. I keep hearing founders say like, oh, I want to fundraise. And I'm like, cool, like, what are you fundraising on? And they're like, well, the investor will set that, right? And I'm like, no, the investor negotiates it. You set it. They negotiate it. I just want to really make that clear because that is like a total power dynamic, not no. Like the investor will ask you to send them your documents and those documents have to be filled in with things like terms. (laughs) So um, (laughs) you should think about it ahead of time with your lawyer, with your co-founder, with mentors, advisors. What do we want to raise on? What document? What discount do we want to do? What interest do we want to do? What valuation cap do we want to do? Maturity date, et cetera. And then be willing to have some wiggle room. And that wiggle room could, uh, you know, that's the negotiation wiggle room. It's also a sales tactic. So let's say, you know, I actually recommend to founders go out to market with a, you know, 15% discount. And, but in your heart of hearts, you know, you actually are totally fine with 20%. But you actually bring that up in the negotiation time in the due diligence when, you know, the investor is thinking and, you know, emailing you asking questions and stuff, you can say, hey, and this is only if you want to, but essentially, closing the deal faster by saying, hey, I'd like to offer you additional discount up to 20%. I've seen founders fundraise based on that. It's a sales method. Um, again, I would I'd leave that to more mature fundraisers, but uh, or maybe you're on your second convertible note. This time you feel more comfortable to do something like that. But I just want to make sure founders know you set your terms and then you can go out and negotiate them. You don't have to sit back and wait for an investor to tell you what you're worth. Yeah. And to Brittany's point, right, it all goes back to kind of that power dynamic. I see so many founders think they have no power when in fact, right, you should be setting your terms, as Brittany has mentioned. You know, that's something that you have control over. You have the power to negotiate them. You should know, as Brittany was mentioning, what your fallback positions are. You know, if an investor comes and pushes for 20 or 25 percent, is that something you're willing to give on? Maybe not, right? But maybe there's another term that you are willing to give on. And so you give more on that term and push back on this Mm -hmm. term. There's a lot of strategy that goes into those types of negotiations. And so you'll want to make sure that those are all positions that you've thought about and you understand what's important to you along with what's important to that investor before you enter the negotiations. Yeah, my first fundraise, y'all, I did not know this stuff well enough to do that. So (laughs) that's that's just a little tidbit for you uh, overachievers out there. (laughs) Perfect. Well, Brittany, anything else that our female founders should know before we sign off about their first fundraise? Uh, just that if you want some more, uh, awesome information on pitch deck 101, how much to fundraise and from whom fundraise strategy, where I actually show you different programs that I use to actually track investors and the template. I even provide template email and LinkedIn messages for you to use in your fundraise. Just go to femtechfocus.org, join our virtual community and become a FemPro member for only $15 a month, super accessible, mostly just covers my cost of the platform. Uh, And you can watch those webinars there in the founder fundraising channel. So I think between these two episodes and those webinars, y'all are set. You're all you're all MBAs at this point. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> I love all the MBAs out there. So we're all good. 
<laughs> awesome. Thank you all so much for tuning in. We hope that you found this informative and enjoyable, and I hope you'll tune into the next episode. Thanks for listening to Legally Femtech with Bethany Corbin. To connect with Bethany, follow Femtech Lawyer on Twitter and Instagram. Visit her website at femtechlawyer.com and connect with her on LinkedIn. If you found value in this show, we'd really appreciate a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Until next time.